Well, back in the 80s and early 90s, um, there really wasn't any work at all in, in the Maritimes where I was. So Prince Edward Island, uh, I tried for months and months just to find a minimum wage job and, and couldn't. So um, I, I left in my car, I think, with about three or four hundred bucks left and drove across um, several times going to get work and then going back. And eventually I just didn't go back except to visit. It just, uh, there just wasn't, my life became more and more out West. And, um, so now I, now I just go back to visit. You drove across the continent for, for a minimum wage job. Is that right? Yes. Several of them actually. <laughs> it just, uh, there, there weren't, there weren't any jobs. You know, I would get jobs back in Prince Edward Island, like harvesting potatoes. And you'd be sitting in the back of a, the potato harvester, it would be pitch dark. There would be fumes coming up out of the tractor into the cab that you're working in. You know, you're, you're trying to beat the frost. So it's, you know, about one or two degrees and uh, you're in this clunkety thing going back and forth and, and you're lucky to have that. And, but it's only going to be two or three weeks work. And then you're back where you started. So when, um, when fall started to come around the last time I left, I think it was the middle of September. I say, okay, this is the cutoff. I can't leave it any longer. So I hopped in my car and uh, drove out west because after that, I figured I, I might hit snowstorms in northern Ontario or, or really bad weather. So I do love the East Coast, but it just, it, over time, I've become more of a West Coast person, I guess. What kind of work did you find out there initially? Initially, um, jobs like working on farms in Alberta, and that was less than minimum wage. Um then up, up into the Okanagan for a while, I was fruit picking. So that's in the mountains in the, in, uh, the interior of the mountains in British Columbia. And that's also less than minimum wage. I worked in a sign shop for a while. I, I started out working for free and then gradually got paid a little bit. Um, worked in a couple of sign shops and a uh, whole bunch of, whole bunch of different things. You know, it's, it's been a long time. I'm in, I'm in my mid fifties, so I'm kind of hesitating when, cause I'm dredging into my memory here quite a, quite a way back. <laughs> That's your job, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. To kind of dig in the past and pull some of these things out. And I know that yeah. at least with this project, you had the, the benefit of having um, some journals that you were pulling from. Yes. I've talked to a lot of people who have a lot of artists who have done some farming work or some harvesting work, you know, a lot of times it's like, it's, it's seasonal. They'll do it to augment the, the art that they create. Um, and a lot of them actually tend to, to enjoy it. You know, a lot of them tend to find it to be almost kind of a, a meditative process. I would agree with that. Um, sometimes it's unpleasant or cold or, or, um, or you're in a situation where you're not being treated very well by, by the employers. Um, f- farm work can, can, can get like that sometimes, but you get into, after a few hours, you get into sort of a trance like state. And sometimes you, you come up with ideas or, or, or poems or, or, um, you get into a strange creative state of mind sometimes when you're, when you're doing labor like that. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done lots of other work, but that, that was my, my initial, my initial, uh, Thing. So it, it, it's kind of good. It, it gives you a work ethic. So it might not seem like there's any transferable skills from it, but but you you can you can work hard at a project. You can tackle it. Um, you know, you can plow through difficult points. You know, it's 
I would actually recommend it to everybody to, to do work like that when you're younger. I don't know if this is the case with, with all of your jobs, but I, in a lot of these jobs on the farm, you know, they, it entails waking up really early. You know, wait, for a lot of them, it, it's kind of the crack of dawn to get started. And certainly people who have not had prior work experiences and are just in the arts have a lot of difficulty keeping any sort of schedule. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. You sort of alluded to, I guess, mentally writing poems as you were involved in that process. Was that part of your early artistic ambition? My early artistic ambition, I guess, was was to be an artist of some kind. I used to go to the library and, and read books with, you know, um, paintings like the group of seven and other Canadian artists and, and um, impressionist art and uh, other nice, you know, colorful stuff. And I dabbled in painting. And then later on in life, I sold a few paintings, but there, there was a point around grade six or grade eight, I can't remember, where I thought about being a comic book artist and uh, started to write a, um, a comic, which was based on kind of a a copy between a, a, a comic called Papyrus, I think, and Lloyd Alexander's books, the non-comic books. Um, I forget what the series was called, but one of the books was called Terran Wanderer, where at some point somebody's riding around on a giant cat. So I had limited creativity at that point in my life. So I sort of combined the costume from Papyrus with the riding a giant animal, which I switched to a dog. I thought that was terribly clever of me. <laughs> but but then at that point, the um, things kind of changed in my life and didn't go that great. And there was this gigantic gap where I, where I didn't do anything with comics at all. But there was one point where I thought about it. But growing up in rural Prince Edward Island, comic book artist was not an option. There was no art school. And I honestly, at that point, didn't think it was a career that women could even do or girls could even do. There's a familiar story there. I think it's changed these days. You know, I, I think that comics beyond superheroes have broken through enough to the mainstream that people realize that there, that there is a world outside of that. And along with that world comes potentially the ability to actually do that as a living. But I have spoken to so many artists over the years who read comics growing up and were familiar with superheroes and other books and just and didn't even realize that there was a possibility outside of that. No, I had no idea. No idea at all. I didn't know graphic novels existed until 2017. Was that a shock to your system? No, it was more of a gradual realization because it took me a while to discover what I liked. You know, I had to read a whole stack of them before I realized there was a pattern to which ones I liked and which ones didn't interest me that much. So it wasn't like a eureka moment. It was like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, I like this one, but this one doesn't appeal to me. Oh, I'm, you, you know, the, I want to get more of these and, and check into them. And then gradually I realized that I, I was really into the, mostly the memoir type of comics and the longer, the longer form, you know, like uh, ones that really appealed to me were Mimi Pons, The Customer's Always Wrong, Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, the, you know, those type of things were the ones that really appealed to me. But it was a, a gradual discovery. I imagine that Fun Home in particular was a, a bit of a revelation in terms of the subject matter that you could potentially cover in a comic. Yes, yes. Pers personal, that, that one was a, a big influence in, in how I approached the book that I did, Our Little Secret, partly because I, I like the caption-heavy part of it. 
I, I enjoyed that. And, and also the, I liked her line work, the, 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 the ink work. And also because it talked about some very personal things. It talked about family, it, um, a lot of musings about, about the good and the bad in people. Yeah, that was a big influence, that one. This was a story that you were holding in for a long time. Yes. At what point did you realize that was something that you wanted to share with the world? And did that did that predate the realization of the the medium that you could use to express it? It was sort of a convoluted path because it, it wasn't like I could say, I know I know of this person that has gone through this and they wrote a comic book and then everything was great. So there really wasn't anybody that I could copy out there that, that, that I could see at the time. So it was more a process of, of um, the, the lawsuit taking so long and weighing more and more on me. The feeling of having to contain the secret was just getting more and more unbearable. And I, I did try to write some poetry and creative nonfiction, and I found that that told part of the story. But I felt like there was a lot of it that was not still not told and i came to realize that that over over time that with comics and seeing that there was such a thing as autobiographical or memoir comics i realized that i could show in detail what happened and instead of describing it instead of spending a whole page describing a scene in the forest and what the leaves look like i could just draw it and so I started on it as a class project, and then uh, gradually it turned into a book. And, and with sharing it, I guess I, I hope that by sharing it, it might do some good, because I, I didn't see a lot out there that, that I could find with, with the detail that, that I put into my story. You had said that you didn't have any examples of somebody who did something similar, and then then everything was great, which obviously is, uh, like everybody would like a a sense of catharsis in in that work or or a sense that they've been able to sort of exercise some of those demons or some of those things that we've been carrying around and not sharing with people. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't go so far as assuming that that everything is great now that that this is out in the world, but you know, how has it changed your own relationship with the subject matter? It's uh, it's interesting because I I didn't have any really preconceived notions of what would happen, so I've been thinking about this because it's still settling in. The book's only been out for a short while. And um, I feel different. I feel fundamentally different, but it's it's a subtle feeling. I thought maybe it would feel like a giant burden being lifted off, but it's, it's more subtle than that. It's um, some kind of feeling of freedom, but it's not like a giddy feeling of freedom. It's just like a a feeling of relief. And somebody said something interesting the other day, which was that because I had now contained my story in a book, it was now physically separated from me. And, and I thought that was interesting because it, it sort of does feel like the story is physically separated from me. And so when I talk about it, it doesn't affect me in nearly the same way. It's, it doesn't trigger me. It doesn't... It doesn't make me, unless I, unless you ask for, you know, extreme detail about a certain scene, it probably wouldn't trigger any flashbacks type episodes or anything. And um, I feel quite separated from it. And, and the, the emotional part is gone. Sometimes I feel anger. Maybe that's an, a, an emotion that's still left in me that I haven't really expressed. But 
the fear and all that that I felt before, all the other emotions are seem to be gone. Interestingly, it's an interesting analogy. I you know I to hear it described that way, it almost likened it to like a message in a bottle. You know, of writing yeah. something down on a scroll and popping the cork on and then sending it off into the world. It, it is. That's a neat way of putting it. Yeah. I don't know how far ahead you were thinking. And obviously, you know, I get the sense that this has sort of taken on a life that certainly you hadn't, you wouldn't have expected when you first started taking those classes. Were you anticipating the potential difficulty in once you had left that message in the bottle out of having to kind of relive this in subsequent conversations and you know, and, and the book tour and having to speak about to people about the subject matter? I, had, I hadn't honestly thought about it. It's um, because it felt like it was something I had to do. So I didn't really, it was something that I felt I couldn't contain anymore. So I couldn't live with it being contained inside me anymore. It was, it was this feeling of constantly either being crushed or ready to burst. I don't know which the, the best way of putting it is. But so no, I didn't really put a, put a whole lot of thought into what <clears throat> excuse me, what I was going to do after, because it was, uh, it was just something that was necessary to do. I suppose it's a bit like if, if you see your house is on fire, you don't really think about when you're going to call the insurance company and what you're going to tell them. You just want to put the fire out. And, and it's all you think about is, is the, how you're going to get the fire out. I mean, I guess that's kind of a, not a great analogy, but, but at the time of writing it, all I, w- I was so deeply into whatever part of my brain the story was in that it was, it was a matter of getting the story out. And once it was out, I would, I, I would live with it. I do remember saying to myself, whatever happens, I can live with it because I know I, I can't live with the story trapped inside me. So whatever happens after it's out, I will live with it. Yeah. I and mean, obviously the lawsuit is a big part of the book just in the amount of time that it took and the years or I don't know, even like decades that it took to, to go through that process. I, surprising isn't the right word, but you know, it's interesting to hear that it was that process that really triggered the creation of the book versus the sort of the initial trauma that you went through. What's your sense of why that was what made you feel like you needed to get this story out? So it was 2010 when I first when, when I saw Richard again and the abuse that happened in the 80s. So that was a, a big span of time. where, I, And that was when I realized how it had affected me. That's, how, that's when it all came kind of rushing back. So getting involved in the lawsuit in a way meant that I was silenced until the lawsuit was over. And what I was trying to do, my goal was to get the story out. So I would, I would, sometimes I'd mention to my lawyer, you know, I'd I'd like to put something in the press or the paper. And he'd say things like, well, you might, you know, usually the press is sympathetic, but you know, it could backfire and, and you, you can't, you can't contact Richard. That would be terrible. And you can't do this and you can't do that. So the, the legal process itself was silencing me. And that was part of the frustration is, is I, once I got into that process, I, I had to sort of go along with what my lawyer was saying, which is to stay quiet about it until the whole thing was over. And it was not so much the lawsuit, although that was crazy making for sure, but it was the being silenced for such a long period of time after being told to keep something secret. 
And your first, what you want to do more than anything is to to not keep it secret. If you had been afforded that ability, and if you had been, been able to sort of go to the press with it, I mean, obviously the the process of you know talking to a reporter and watching that see print versus you know sitting down and working on this book and being able to tell your own story from beginning to end. What's your sense of what the story you would have wanted to tell at the time would have been? The at the time. It was more of an emotional reaction. When I, when I wrote the story, I wasn't angry. I was just lo- looking into the story. But at, but at the time that I was going through the lawsuit, I was I was really angry. So I did try to get the story put in in the press a little bit, um, in the sense that I was long listed for the CBC Poetry Prize a few years ago, and the poem was about the sexual abuse as well. And so I thought, okay, here's my chance to put something in the paper. So I went to the paper and said, the local paper, and said, I've, I've uh, written this poem. I was wondering if you could, they, they wanted to do an article, but, but they, what, what was interesting is that uh, they refused to mention his name. They, their lawyers were too frightened to mention his name. So in a way, I was being silenced again. So, you, you know, you can talk about your poem, but you can't talk about who did it to you you know, and what happened. So there, there were other ways I, I could have, I could have, uh, you, you know, there's the internet, there are many other ways that I could have made it public. But the reason in the end that I, that I wrote the book is because I thought of all of the things that I could have done. The book has the best chance to help other people. I thankfully haven't been through something similar, but it was, you know, when you say anger, it was a desire to make this person pay for what he'd done? Accountability. I guess I wanted some kind of a, a public admission or, or acknowledgement. Some kind of... I, I also wanted to know if if he had abused anybody else. At the, at the time that I hap- it happened, he seemed to be kind of a... It seemed too easy for him. I thought, at the, you know, even at the time, I remember thinking, anybody who's who does this and and it seems so easy surely they've done this before it seemed like it wasn't his first time doing that that was my impression it it seemed to me like he had a, 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 a some lines that he liked to use and maybe he'd used them before and and i think that i was hoping that if, if it went to a trial or something like that then people would be maybe somebody would would show up and say hey this guy did this to me too but it's just that the odds the odds are pretty good there are very few people who molest just one underage person. You know, there are some, but the odds are that that he's done it more than once. It sounds like the the process for you was really sitting down and almost working through it on paper. And I and I find this differs quite a bit from from artist to artist. You know, there there are certainly those people out there who like to map out every bit of the story and have the entire book essentially written before they sit down. But I I got the feeling it wasn't quite stream of consciousness, but that you were really almost working through the book in real time as you were drawing it. That is pretty much exactly what happened. Is um, when I went to 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 start the book, um, it's almost like, and I don't really know how these processes work. I'm just taking my best guess. Is it was literally your first time even trying this? Yes. So it's almost like I had a wall that I'd shoved all this stuff behind so I could function in my life, just compartmentalizing. And then I said, okay, I'm going to sit down with a stack of paper and a pencil and I'm going to start writing. And, and I, I, I took that approach 
after listening to um, a podcast, actually interviewing Seth, and he talked about his approach to to memory and how it's not necessarily linear. You can just go and you can remember one thing and it might trigger another thing and then you wander through that. So I sat down with my stack of paper and I imagined, I guess, opening up this wall or some hole in the wall so that the story could come out. And I wrote down the first thing that came into my head. And the first thing that came into my head was, when I look back, what really stands out is the flies. And this picture came into my head of a giant fly. And uh, I think I mentioned before to, to somebody once, it wasn't like a giant fly. It was just that I was really close up and it was sitting on the counter. And, and my dad's log cabin was in the background. So, so I drew that and then I just kept going with the next image and the next image. And when I went to edit it, there were suggestions like make this panel bigger or you have too many panels or you could shorten this up or this is repetitive. But the basic structure once I'd gone through the whole thing, didn't change. Why was the fly, how did that end up being the right place to start things? I don't know. It's the first, it's the first, first the words came into my mind and then the image. So I didn't know why, but I just went with it and, and I just followed it through there. I I really liked the fly. It, it, It gives a tone to the whole story. Flies are, flies like old rotten things, you know, they're, they're gross. They lay eggs and maggots come out and crawl over the place. I mean, nobody really likes flies. So it sort of, for me, gave a tone, um, a tone to the story. Whatever, the fly is there and then you go into the story. And this sort of image, I guess, in your mind of the fly maybe maybe stays a little more. So there was a bit of discussion as to whether it was a good idea to start a book with a giant fly in it. But uh, and <laughs> they went back and forth. They, the uh, drawn and quarterly for a while didn't think it was a great idea, and then they changed their minds, and, and we went with, we went with the fly, which was the original image. What was the pushback initially? Just that it's sort of unpleasant to open on this, you know, big yes. insect. <laughs> exactly. the The thought was that people might pick up the book and see the giant fly, and you know not be too, not really want to go any further. This is something that I largely encounter when I talk to either poets or or musicians, but writing a poem or a song lyric, and then only really realizing the symbolism or really what you were writing about after you're done or after you're removed from it. And and there's something, you know, I I think, I think probably what, what we should highlight a little bit for those who haven't read it is the I mean, the flies were not only really pervasive for a, you know a, a portion of your childhood, but the reason why they were around is because um, there were these giant cracks in your father's log cabin, and they were really just yes. like I don't want to put too fine a point on it or you know drill down on the <laughs> metaphor too much, but just having the having the literal seams of your home crawling with these flies. I mean, that's a pretty the, the imagery kind of speaks for itself. Yes. And if I had sat down and and come up with a plot and written out an outline of the story, never in a million years would I have said, you know, page one, draw a giant fly, you know, page two, um, keep going with the flies, describe where the flies are, they're buzzing everywhere, why they're there, have father stomping in circles, ranting and raving and looking for his glasses, you know, it never would have come out like that. And whatever the place is where these stories sit in your head, this was the first time I found that place. And, and I wonder if everybody has a place where there, where there are stories like this, that if you, if you just can find it, the, that these, 
these stories come out. Um, but I know now that I can access it. I don't, I don't know if I can make something as good again, but I know that I can find that place again and I, and I can, I can write other books from that same place, which is, which is really in, uh, a neat thing to discover. Um, and, and I feel like I want to sit down and, and draw a whole bunch of books and do a whole bunch of books. And, uh, but, but I've sort of discovered this place in my head where the stories come from and, and, um, could, never could access it. I, I think we're risking kind of speaking in too much abstraction here. I'm kind of thinking of it in sort of the process of meditation where, you know, where you can kind of try to meditate every day and bang your head against the wall. And then one day sort of clicks. And then once you get that feeling, it, it's it's possible to go back there again. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe something like that. I don't really know what it is. What does place mean insofar as you're actually able to kind of articulate such an abstract idea it's uh well i I don't really know where it is in my head or or what it what it means but but i know that if i get a stack of paper and a pencil and i don't have to worry about you know too much of the day-to-day things if things are moderately organized in my life and i'm in a nice comfortable place and it's pretty quiet i can sit down and and given a little bit of time i can i can get into that place and produce reams and reams of stuff, you know, which may or may not be any good in the end, but, but the volume is certainly there. <laughs> so, and then you sift through it, I guess, to find something that might be useful. Is it accessing memory? Is it writing a memoir or is it really just being able to be productive? It means I can sit down and create. Um, so it, it could be a, a, a very different topic. For instance, I'm, I'm working on a book hopefully, hopefully a book about conversations with a a friend of mine who goes to Mexico every winter and surfs. He's a very interesting character. Um, So that's more based on our conversation. So it's much less on, on uh, much less of that involved, but I, but I have other ideas. I thought it might be interesting to write a story about animals or, or even chickens, which I've had, and that would involve the same type of thing. It would be just going, going to a place where I'm thinking about the topic and I go with whatever images or memories or thoughts. It could be something from the past or the present. It could be musing on the future of chickens. You know, what are chickens going to be like in a thousand years? <laughs> it, it could go in any direction. But but I know that if I if I sit down, I can I can I can get to to something anyway. It's one of those things that seems really obvious on the face of it, but is much more difficult when you sort of sit down and try to make a thing. Is especially this thing that's been weighing on you for a number of years. And it, that is a long story that does take up multiple decades in your life is it's impossible to know exactly where to start. So it sounds like the thing that you've been able to identify is that you just, you just need to find a good starting place and just let the story kind of build out from there. However, whatever form it ultimately takes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's probably what happened is that I just found a starting point. I think maybe if, if you keep something bottled up like that for, for such a long time, you can't bring the whole wall down at once or it crushes you. So you let a little bit out and then you, you follow that. I had no idea really where it was going to go, but I just took the, once that thread started, it seemed to carry on on its own, really, which was nice because uh, I don't know how I would have approached it. I, I guess maybe I would have gone in some kind of chronological order otherwise, but it would have been a completely different book. 
completely different. There is a chronology there to a certain extent. There is a yeah. way in which, you know, it does go through a period of your life. But I think more than that, and, and, and I'm kind of curious if how much of this is really because it was your first book and because you almost, because you, I mean, you did quite literally learn how to write a book and learn how to be a cartoonist in the process of actually creating it, that it, at a certain yeah. point, it becomes a meditation on the act of writing a book. Yes. Um it, it does. It almost becomes, I, I don't know if it's a meditation. It, it could be, or, or it could be almost an out-of-body experience where you're sort of observing yourself writing a book, but you don't really have any, any real part in it. It's like the process happens automatically and you're sort of the observer. I, I don't know which, I haven't really th- thought about so I, I don't know which would be more accurate, but it seemed to be a process that was happening on its own. Pragmatically, from the standpoint of like, there are points where it's almost like a meta commentary, right? There are points when you're actually like talking about what it's like to write a book and, and you're sort of talking yes. about as you're going through it, you're, you're kind of, you're figuring out that you can break the rules or you're figuring out that, you know, that limitations in the process of storytelling are self-imposed. Yes, I think I think that was because as as you mentioned earlier, I was going through the story was me working all this out in my own mind as well as writing a story. So, I would hit walls. I would hit walls. I I I'd go into dead ends. And when I got to those points, sometimes I would I would draw back out of the story itself and come back to the present moment and and wonder how I was going to deal with this or or what was happening or think about future readers and then maybe go back and in, into the story. And, uh, and sometimes metaphorical images would come in too. So I, I think there were several layers. There was the present moment, there was remembering the past, and then there was sort of this, um, almost a dream world or some kind of meta- metaphorical place where, where images weren't images that were real, but they, they had meaning to the story. So I think I, wandered in and in and out of those areas as I as I just it was almost like a maze I think that I wandered through until I finally got to the end and I think a central piece of imagery or maybe even the central piece of imagery beyond the, the flies that we discussed earlier is is encountering in this very dreamlike state encountering a girl who is you to a certain extent it, but that is quite literally a, a kind of a, a dream state is that an instance, I mean, is that based on a dream you had had, or is that really just purely from the process of writing through the book? A little bit of both. So the, the, I think what you're talking about is the, the prairie landscape that, um, that appeared. And that, that image first came to me during the daytime. And I, and I go through this in the book. Um, it came to me in the, in the daytime and, I thought I was hallucinating. So I was having some kind of a panic attack. I don't know what was going on. And I ended up running out of the house, taking off because it, it felt like a panic attack or something. But, but the Im- part of the image was the, the, la- the, the landscape and me, um, me as a, a young kind of sun-deprived waif-like girl on this landscape. And um, th- nothing like that had ever happened to me before or since for that matter. And so the image stuck in my mind. 
And it, it came back as I was going through the book, kind of wandering through these different states of either remembering or, or, or coming into the present moment or, or going into this sort of metaphorical land. It just, it just came back. It came back as I was writing it, as I was writing it. There was a, um, a point in the book where I, I write and then everything went white. And, and those were the words that, that came into my head. And then everything went right. So I, I wrote those words down. And then the next image was the whiteness gradually um, disappearing, almost like a receding fog. And then I was back in this landscape again, this prairie, this undulating prairie landscape that, that had uh, um, just covered with dead brown grass and a white sky. And, and then um, the girl was there again and she started to talk to me. So, and it wasn't, this wasn't a hallucination or anything. It was, it was, um, it just happened as I wrote the, the dialogue came into my head and she would say things and I would say things and I would write them down. I just allowed it, uh, allowed it to happen. It was uh, interesting to say the least to go through it. Well, certainly that first instance that you're talking about when you first encountered that, I mean, it, hallucination is probably the word that, that I that I would have gone to. Um, it sounds like it felt real the first time. It did. It felt real. Um, it felt absolutely 100% real. I could, I could feel the cold. I could feel the cold air. I could see the grass waving. I could see the white sky. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it felt completely 100% real. Looking back on that and, and with some distance from it now, you know, and I, and I assume that you've, you've talked to people about it. Obviously, it's in, it's in the book. And yeah. imagine that on top of sort of these sorts of conversations, you probably have talked to the people in your life about it. But are you able to explain what happened there? I Well, I was in counseling at the time. So the first thing I did was talk to my counselor about it. I, I wanted to make sure I, you know, I, I'd heard the phrase psychotic break. And I'm like, I'm wondering if this is a psychotic break. This seems to be like, this seems to be a bad thing. But um, he, he was, he, he always just minimized everything. It was his, his way of just, you know, he, ne- he never made a big deal. He said, oh, those are just daydreams. So it didn't feel like that to me. It felt, it felt like something frightening and real and uh, panicky. But, um, and I said to him, is this, what if this happens when I'm at work? And he says, oh, no, don't worry, it's not going to. So I was skeptical, but, but he was right, it didn't. So do I have any explanation? No, not really. I suppose of all the imagery, the prairie is the one that I'm still thinking about. Where is it and what does it mean? What is this place? And, and I Google it and there's 25 different opposing explanations for it. So that doesn't go anywhere. But but it's um, one thing I wonder is I used to do quite a lot of painting of, of horses and workhorses usually, and I sold a few of them. And um, the the uh, I'm just looking over at the painting, which is why I'm the the same landscape is there. So it's uh, it's a brown undulating prairie landscape with a white sky. So what what I'm theorizing is that that place was always there and I was, I was trying to paint pictures out of it. So, so this image would appear in in my paintings 
and it was it was something I wasn't aware of. I just thought, oh, I really like how the white sky and the the prairie looks together. I, I think I'll do another one. <laughs> But um, but maybe there was some other connection. Is it like any landscape that you encountered in your childhood? Nope. I suppose when I worked on out in Alberta on the farms, it was similar. I, I worked on a farm in a place called Lethbridge, which had it was a pretty stark landscape, and you know, hobbies would include looking out the window and watching the tumbleweed gather on the fence, <laughs> that type of thing. It was a pretty stark landscape, but. But that's when I think of the painting, that's not the landscape that I'm thinking of. But it's the only one that I've been in that looks similar. It's it's not a real landscape. It's a it's, it's no, it's, it's a not dream. A, it's not a place. Yeah, it's a dream. It's not a place. It's kind of refreshing to hear you say that your your counselor minimized things because you know it's. <laughs> I think people tend to sort of you know you want somebody in that position to be as honest as possible, but also you don't want them to kind of to make you too concerned about something like that. You know, do, do you find that 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 sort of approach, that kind of very kind of honest, but uh, I guess not too hyperbolic approach, is is useful in practice? Well, I've, I talked to a few counselors, and um, he was the most mysterious of them all. I'd sometimes ask him, you know, what the heck's wrong with me, and and he would say things like, "Why can't you just?" relax and, and go through the process. You know, he, he would never really come out with this long list of, of issues. Um, so that was just his style. Now, whether or not that's the best thing or not, I don't know. But but um, it turned out to be the most effective for me because it left me puzzling It's uh, and wondering, you know, what, what does this mean? What's going on? So he would be a little bit vague about things and, and would leave me going home to to try to struggle through and figure it out. And I think that that kept it in my mind longer and it, it etched it in my mind a lot longer than if somebody had said, oh, well, here's your list of deficits and we're going to go through them one by one and fix them. Um, so so it, it was a style, I don't know what you'd call it, but but it, it was effective for me. Well, certainly effective for the creative process, right? And, and that you really had to kind of grapple through that yourself. It's true. It's a, it was a solitary path for sure. Speaking with him or speaking with any of the, the counselors that you went to, you, what were their thoughts on this project? I didn't talk. Um, the counseling that I had was all before this project. At, at the start of this project, I recognized that it was going to be difficult. I was going to go into dark places, places that I'd never been to before. I didn't know how I was going to cope with that. You know, it's something that I'd walled off for literally decades. And um, I was going to dig into it deeper than than I ever had. And I wasn't sure how to cope. So I, I did try to find a counselor to, to help me to go through the process. And uh, I, I, I said to him, I'm, I'm writing this book. Um, I think it's going to be difficult. I need someone that I can check in with every so often and make sure I'm not, you know, losing my mind, literally. So I saw him for maybe five, five or six sessions when he suddenly switched gears and said that he wanted me to go into group, a group therapy and that I should stop writing the book. And I struggled with this. I said, I, I don't want to go into group therapy. I, I, I definitely don't. I do not want to do this. Um, I want, I'd like to write the book. And he pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally, I just cracked and and I left. I was literally, I literally almost fell as I was walking home. I was shaking, 
And I never went back, of course, because I knew this was a book that I had to write. But at that point, I had spent probably 700 bucks on uh, given to him. And I felt really, really betrayed and shaken at that point. And I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to go and start this over with somebody else after that. And I'd already started the process at this point. I couldn't stop it. And I just said, I'm just going to go, I'm going to go through this on my own and whatever happens, happens. So at that point, I just went in on my, on my own. And um, I guess there's maybe something that protects you when you, hopefully when you go on a voyage like that, that, that only reveals things to you at a, at a pace that you can handle it. Uh, maybe I was lucky. Maybe this isn't something that you should do without counseling. But, but the fact that I had to go in on my own, again, made it a different book than it would have been if the counselor had, had stuck with me and if I had stuck with him. How so? I don't imagine I would have, basically, this was a, a journey I went on on my own and kind of, like I said, like a maze that, that I went in. I might not have entered that state or maybe it would have been different. Maybe, maybe he would have try, tried to explain what it meant, pulled me out of it, but um, going in, in it and, and working out it on my own the imagery that came to me, like bears and wolves and uh, flies and um, Lady Justice appeared, like all of a sudden on one page, and I had to deal with that. Like, what am I going to do with this character? <laughs> uh, where does she fit in? So maybe none of those things would have happened if I'd, if I'd had uh, somebody, you know, in a way holding my hand through the process. In a way, there was a power in not knowing what these images meant. Yes. There was a risk to doing it by myself, but doing it by myself allowed all of these images to to be whatever they wanted to be without somebody telling me what they meant. I, I think it, it gave the, the characters in the story a life of their own. They had they had autonomy in a way. What was his rationale for telling you that you needed to stop? I'm not sure. I would like to think that he was doing it for my own good and trying to protect me in some way, because that's what you want to believe your, your counselors are, are doing. But I, I think there's another possibility is that it was deeper than he knew how to deal with. He was mainly a guy who, who dealt with people in group situations. That was his other thing. And I think he, he thought it was maybe an easier path. I'll, I'll never know. I, I never went back. It was, um, it was, I, I was too shaken up. I was literally physically almost unable to walk when I left the office. I was so shaken. You know, as you said, that the plane, for example, is something, or the prairie, sorry, for example, is something that, um, that has been a reoccurring motif through a lot of the work that you've done. You know, with something like that in particular, is there a sense that like, you know, have, have, have you exercised that? Or do you think that it's something that could find its way back into your work again? I'm not sure. I, I think it might particular to this story. I, I, I sort of hypothesized that it was a place that was, you know, shoved behind the wall, so to speak, and I would just catch glimpses of it or ideas of it. I haven't had any any images of the prairie come come back since then, and I haven't had any urge to do any paintings with, with that landscape in it recently. I, I won't know. And here's the catch, though. 
is I won't know until I actually sit down and, and do the process. Because if I, if I follow the kind of the way I, I, I did this book, I'll go into the story, whatever story I'm working on, and it could pop up with no notice. I'm interested to see if it comes back. I don't think it will, but but if it does, uh, I'll explore it again. As you said, this isn't something that you will know until you work at that, or you know, even if you ever really know it or, or figure it out at all. And you know, it, it sounds like that specific image and certainly that the girl, that version of yourself are really tied to this very specific trauma that you were dealing with in this book. It feels like it. Um, I think it, at one point in the story, I write that, that I'm thinking about the, the girl on the prairie that, that is me. I've recognized that it is me. And saying something along the lines of, did Richard put her there? And then replying to my own question, I, I feel like he did. So am I sure that that's what happened? No, I'm not sure. And, and I've been as careful as I can in the story not, not to attribute any, anything to Richard that I'm not sure about, you know. The, the, the dialogue in the book com- comes from my diaries, word for word. So it's not, I, I don't remember what he said. I'm transcribing it directly from my diary. From the, from the time. Are there any other instances of reoccurring motifs in your work that surfaced again in this book? Not, not that I know of. No, not, not really. The, the prairie I think is, is the one that baffles me the most. And it's, it seems because the other ones kind of make sense, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, the other ones are simpler, but this is a location not just an animal or a fly. It's, it's a location. It's a place. I don't really know where the place is, but, but no, I, I don't think anything else like that did pop up. Nope. I'm just thinking, cause I haven't thought about it before. I can't think of any other instance right now. As, as you said earlier, the book is still fairly new, but now that it is out in the world, uh, what have the reactions been like the people in your life who've read it? It's, it's been f- I've only had a few people in in my life read it. One of the reasons is I wanted the book to be out into the world in the form of a book and in stores before I talked too much about it. There's always the fear that that, that abused children have, and I, I don't think it's just me. I think this is very common. And that is that the feeling that the abuser is the most powerful person in the world and that they can somehow reach you wherever you are, even after all this time. So I had the fear that if the book got out there bef- before it was turned into a book, that somehow he would be able to get me and stop me from telling the story. That fear stayed with me right up until the box of books basically arrived in my living room. Now, so very few people have, have seen it. The, the few people that have seen it, I've, I've felt good because what I was trying to, to say, that's what they seem to get out of, out of the story. So there's been a bit of, some people have said things like uh, that they're sorry, they didn't realize I'd had such a hard time, which was nice because, because I didn't run up to, to people in my life and tell them this whole story. But when they read the book, they didn't realize because I'd been kind of compartmentalizing it all. And I, I shared it with one victim 
one other victim of, of sexual abuse, and her reaction was pure anger. She said she was angry I didn't get justice. She was angry about what happened to her. Anger. Now, anger is not really what I'm trying to get, but I'm trying to inform people. And, and, and uh, I'm trying to tell a, a story that's hopefully interesting, but I'm also I'm trying to inform people. These are the stages. These are the steps of the abuse. This is what it looks like. And uh, this is how absolutely ridiculous, you know, these people are. The, the t- ridiculous things they say to try to, to convince children to go along with what they want to do. When this lady that read the book was angry, I thought, man, that's really not what I'm going for. But, but I think it's unavoidable. I think if, if you see something like this and you've been through it, you have to go through anger. So I don't think I can make a book that just just um, is informative and a nice story. I, I can't do that. It doesn't work. This story, it, because of the story that it is, will make a lot of people who have been through this angry. And, and uh, hopefully they'll work through that and, you know, come to terms with it, come to terms with whatever happened to them and hopefully think of something positive to do. But I think the anger is an un- unavoidable stage. There must have been some concern early on, you know, of sort of reopening the wounds in yourself. This is something I talk to musicians about a lot is, you know, writing, you write a song about a certain point in your life or, you know, dealing with something and then you go out on tour and, you know, two, three years later or longer than that, if you have a good career, you're, you're, you're playing that, that song and it, you know, unavoidable that it sort of evokes that in you. And, there's a difficulty here that I can't even imagine to, I don't know if subjecting is the right word, but um, you know, to, to knowing that there's a certain amount of your life that you're going to have to devote to working through this process and, and having it be the main thing that you think about all day. I, I just, I can't imagine how at times painful the process of writing this book must've been. It, it was very difficult in some spots, some harder than others. Some were pleasant, you know, nostalgic images, horseback rides down pretty back lanes. You know, there's some nostalgia, but there were some spots that were very difficult. I think it's like pulling a tooth. is sort of like pulling a tooth and taking a year to do it. So, um, but once the tooth out, it's out. That seems to be, I'd say, the most accurate is is pulling your pulling a tooth for a year. But once it once it once it's gone, it's gone. And the book is in a way the tooth. So I've yanked it out. Um, here it is. I can talk about it. But now it's it's separated from me. You know, I suppose I can be angry with whoever gave me the toothache in the first place. But but I, I think after you've had your rotten tooth taken out. You don't agonize over it that much. You're just glad it's gone. 